0: Amen. Go and take your Bibles out with me, church, and open up to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 31 this morning. If you're visiting with us over the last uh, probably two years now, we've been taking the Psalms a little bit at a time, Uh, rather than starting in Psalm 1 and going all the way to Psalm 150. uh, We're working through eight or ten Psalms at a time, and we're doing it in between our other studies. and so. We're in a section right now where we started at Psalm 24, and we're going to go through Psalm 32, and so one psalm left in this section after this morning, but Psalm 31 today. Uh, You might remember me mentioning the name John Huss to you last week. Do y'all remember that name? John Huss was the guy who was brought up on charges by the Roman Catholic Church, and one of the charges he was brought up on was that he encouraged congregational singing. I don't know if you remember me mentioning him, but uh, John Huss... He lived about a hundred years before the Protestant Reformation, so late 1300s, early 1400s. And in a lot of ways, you could think of John Huss as a pre-reformer. He was believing and teaching a lot of the doctrines that would be rediscovered and uncovered during the Reformation. John Huss was preaching those truths a hundred years before the Protestant Reformation came along. He was teaching that it's the Bible that is the authority for God's people. Um, Huss was teaching that it's Jesus, not the Pope, who's the head of the church. He was decrying the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church. He was railing against the sale of indulgences. And and one of the other things that John Huss did is he preached the Bible in his church. That was unheard of because generally you just went to church services in that world just for Mass. You would go to take Mass. You would hear Latin readings and Latin chants, which most people couldn't understand But Hus believed that God's people should hear God's word in a language they could understand, not just in Latin. And so Hus would stand in his pulpit on Sunday mornings and he would preach scripture and thousands would come to listen to him. He he was pastoring uh, Bethlehem Chapel in Prague in the Czech Republic. And when Huss would have services on Sunday morning, as many as 3,000 people would come to those church services just to hear him open the Bible and preach the Bible to God's people. And of course, because of what he did and because of the the doctrines he was teaching, John Huss was public enemy number one to the Roman Catholic Church. And so they set up a plan to trap John Huss. And the plan was they invited him to go to a church council. Under the guise, they just wanted him to come up for a discussion, and they promised him that if he would come to this discussion, they would guarantee his safety. No harm would come if he would come to this church meeting, and so Huss agreed, under the promise of safety, went to this meeting with the the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church, and of course, they did not keep him safe. He went there, and uh, very quickly, they arrested him. He spent the next six months in a prison, terrible conditions, right next to the city sewer system. And then after months in prison, finally he was tried and condemned to die. And on uh, July 6th, 1415, they tried to to execute him in the most shameful way possible. So before they killed him, they took a, a dunce hat, and they put the dunce hat on his head, and they wrote on the hat, the chief heretic. And then they had all sorts of drawings and paintings of demons on the hat, and they marched him through the streets of the city, to shame him and then they they brought him to the execution site they tied his hands behind his back to a wooden stake put a chain around his neck stacked up firewood all around him and lit him on fire in fact our saying we say sometimes your goose is cooked well this is what it comes from the name huss means goose they literally cooked the goose. They burned him at the stake. And it's got a morbid etymology the next time you say your goose is cooked. It comes from the execution of John Huss. Well, as Huss was dying, as he was going through all of this, he began to pray, and he began to recite Scripture. And especially John Huss, as he was being executed, began to recite lines from the psalm we're going to be looking at this morning. He began to recite lines from Psalm 31. It's interesting that this psalm seems to have come to the minds of a lot of great Christians at the hour of their death. We're told that Martin Luther recited lines from Psalm 31 as he was approaching death. If you think of Bible characters, you know the story of Jonah. That Jonah ran from God and ended up in the belly of a great fish. And you read of Jonah's prayer. Jonah chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer to God from the fish's belly. And as Jonah prays to God in Jonah 2, he quotes Psalm 31. When Jeremiah, the great prophet, was suffering, Jeremiah began to pray and ask questions to God, and Jeremiah quoted Psalm 31. And most importantly, think of the Lord Jesus on the cross. We know that as Jesus was being crucified, the Psalms were at the front of his mind, and we know that because as Jesus hung on the cross... He quoted two scriptures, both from the Psalms. He quoted Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then what's the other passage Jesus quoted while he was hanging on the cross? Well, he quoted a line from Psalm 31. Into your hands I commit my spirit. That's from our psalm today. Jesus quoted this psalm. In fact, those were the last words Jesus spoke before he died. Our Lord died with the words of Psalm 31 on his lips. So what is this psalm? Well, it's another psalm of David, and you won't be surprised to hear that it's a psalm that David wrote under distress. In fact, as we get into this psalm, David describes himself as being like a besieged city, And make sure you get that image in your mind. Remember what would happen when an invading army would come in and they would come to a walled city. What would they do? Well, they would just surround it and try to strangle it out. They would cut off supplies from getting in. They would starve the people out who were inside. They would make sure that no help could get in. And if you were living inside of one of those besieged cities, there was a sense of hopelessness. Because you knew at any minute that the enemy could come scaling over the walls. So if you were in a besieged city, there was sort of this impending sense of dread that hung in the air. Well, that's that's how David describes himself. He feels like a besieged city, like all help has been cut off, like he's being starved out, like at any moment the enemy's finally going to break through the walls and everything's going to fall apart. But it's hard to pin Psalm 31 down to any one kind of genre. So, so there's elements of lament to it. There's elements of thanksgiving to it. It's sort of a collage of different types of psalms all woven together. And you'll pick that up here in just a minute as we read. And you'll notice it's a lot longer than the most recent psalms we've looked at. Most of our psalms the last month have been 10 verses, 12 verses. Well, this, this psalm is twice that length. And so I'm trying to cover a psalm a week. So we're going to move a lot faster this morning than we have the last couple weeks. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this under three headings, and we're just going to read it as we go. So we'll break break up our reading, and we'll read it under these headings. Here's the first heading. Number one, I want to see how David declares his faith. David declares his faith. If your Bible's open to Psalm 31, let's read the first five verses together. Psalm 31, verses 1 through 5. David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, In you, O Lord, that's in you, O Yahweh, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, Lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they've secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Notice how David, he starts this psalm of distress with this emphatic declaration of his faith. He says in the very opening verse, In you, O Yahweh, I put my trust. And then he immediately starts unpacking his request to God. And the first thing that David asked for is that God would not allow him to be ashamed. Deliver me from being ashamed. Now, now, shame in this culture was different from how we think of shame. We think of shame as mainly something we feel. We feel shame. It's not what it was in Hebrew culture. To be ashamed was to be publicly humiliated. To be ashamed was to be disgraced in the public arena where everyone saw that you had been left out to dry. And David knew that's what his enemies were after. David had enemies who were willing to use any means necessary. They would use lies, they would use violence, they would use slander. But what they were after is they wanted David's reputation publicly ruined. And so David here is asking God to, to deliver him from that, to vindicate him. Clear his name from the attacks of his enemies. And Do you you see that one line that David uses? He says, Lord, bow down your ear. What do you think of when you think of bending over your ear to hear? Have you ever been in a hospital room? Or maybe a hospice room with someone who's really sick? I mean, so sick that they barely have the strength to talk so sick that it takes everything they have just to utter a whisper. And what do you have to do if you're trying to care for someone like that? Well, if you're going to hear what they say, you have to lean your ear over right next to their lips so you can hear what they're whispering. That, that's the picture that David's painting here. It's like David is saying, Lord, I'm so weak. Please bend down your ear to hear my cries. And did you notice the different titles of God that he stacks up in these verses? David calls God, Rock of Refuge, Fortress of Defense, My Rock, My Fortress, My Strength. Now those are all different titles, but they all all imply the same thing, right? All of those titles imply strength. They all imply security and stability and defense. If you were facing an enemy in the wilderness, you wanted a rock. You wanted to fight from the high place. If you were facing an enemy in the city, you wanted a fortress. You wanted a place you could run to where your enemies couldn't get to you, where their attacks couldn't hit home. And that's what David is is saying that God is to him. God is his security. God is his defender. God is his refuge. In fact, did you notice how he words it differently in verse 3? David says, you are my rock. But in verse 2, David says, be my rock. It's like David is saying, God, I know that you are all of these things, but right now I need you to be these things for me. Lord, I know that you are a fortress, but right now I need you to be my fortress. Listen, there's a world worth of difference in the Christian life between knowing God is a fortress and knowing God is my fortress. Anybody can know, yeah, God is all of these things, but it's something different when you're in distress to know God is the one who you're leaning on. That's what David is saying, Lord. Be now my rock. And in verse 4, he paints this picture as if his enemies are hunters and he's the prey. They've set traps For David, think of of deer hunters that have formed a line and they're trying to drive a deer by walking through the woods. They're trying to drive the deer in a certain direction. That's what David feels like. It feels like his enemies are driving him right into a trap that they've set for him. He's he's walking through a minefield. And so David says, Lord, lead me. And Lord, guide me. And it's right in that context that we come to verse 5 where David says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. Now think of what David's saying here. This is is a statement of absolute surrender to God. David has enemies on every side. David has traps all around him. So what David's doing here is he is just entrusting his soul to the Lord. Lord, I, I know the enemies are more than me. I know the traps are in places I won't even be able to see them. So I entrust my soul to you. You're going to have to deliver me from this. That's what, that's what David is saying. And of course, this is the verse that Jesus quoted on the cross. And you can see why this psalm would have been at the front of Jesus' mind as he was being crucified. Because David's circumstances here very much mirrored what Jesus would one day experience. Like David, Jesus was surrounded by enemies. Like David, it seemed like all of Jesus' help had been cut off. Like, Like David, it seemed like Jesus had been abandoned. And so like David, as Jesus hung on the cross, He said, Into your hand I commit my spirit. What's Jesus doing there? That's Jesus, to the last breath, entrusting His soul to the Father. Everyone else has abandoned Him, but Jesus is convinced that the Father will vindicate Him. Everyone else has abandoned Him, but Jesus is convinced that the Father will rescue Him. But did the Father rescue Him? Jesus prayed this prayer and He still died, right? The Father, the Father supremely vindicated Jesus, didn't He? How? By rising and raising Him from the dead. Three days later, He rose from the dead in the supreme act of vindication. He's proven to be exactly who He said He was. He's, he's proven to be Lord in Christ. In the resurrection. And so Jesus died. Surrendering his soul into the hands of the Father. David continues. Look at verses 6-8. through I have hated those who regard useless idols. But I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy. For you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities. And have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. Do you see how David describes his enemies? He describes them as those who worship useless idols. And this is what gives David confidence in the trial, is David, his trust is in God as his refuge. Who are are his enemies trusting in? They're trusting in idols. What are those idols going to do for them? Nothing. So so David's point is, his enemies are trusting in gods that aren't gods at all. They're they're trusting in figments of their imagination. They're trusting in pseudo-gods that will never help. And meanwhile, David is trusting in the true God, who is a rock and solid ground and a fortress. And look at what David says about God in verse um, 5. No, not verse 5, verse 8 and 7, where he says... I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, verse 7, for you have considered my troubles. Your translation might word that. You have seen my troubles, for you have known my soul in adversities. Do you see that David is saying, Lord, here's what gives me hope. I know that you have seen me. You have seen my troubles. Lord, I know that you know the adversities that I'm facing. You have not abandoned me, Lord. You're not oblivious to the trials that I'm facing. It's very similar language to the way Moses described God seeing the people of Israel as they were languishing away in Egypt. Listen to these words in Exodus 2. Listen to how David's words sort of harken back to this. This is describing the people of Israel as they were slaves in Egypt. Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. And then the children of Israel groaned because of their bondage. And they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel. And God acknowledged them. Do you hear that language? God heard them. God saw them. God acknowledged them. God had compassion for them. It changes everything in your trial when you really believe that God sees. That God knows. There have been a number of movies that have come out in recent years about that group of boys that got stranded in uh, Thailand. Do y'all remember that story? Of the there was the soccer team, the coach who took twelve of the youth soccer players. These are all early preteen age boys, and he took them after a soccer practice up into a, a cave system in northern Thailand. And while they were up in this cave system, monsoon rains moved in, and so by the time they tried to come out, the entrance to the cave had completely flooded and the floodwaters kept rising and rising so they had to retreat further and further back into the system and they ended up being stuck there for two weeks or maybe a little bit longer than that but the worst part of their, their abandonment, their time there, was the first nine days because for the first nine days they were in that cave as far as they knew, no one even knew where they were. There were no signs of outside life There was no contact. They wondered for the first nine days if anyone even knew where they were or what they were going through. But nine days in, all of a sudden, divers popped out of the water in the little cavern that they were in, and they knew they had been found. Now, it took almost a week later until all those boys got rescued from that cave. But the moment they knew they had been seen, the moment they knew they had been found by those divers, the despair completely lifted. Why? They'd been seen. They knew rescue was on the way. That's what David is describing here. Listen, Christian, whatever you're going through, God is not oblivious to your trials. God sees the adversities of his children. God sees the sufferings of his children. He sees, he knows, he is moved with compassion. That's what David falls back on in those first few verses. Here's the second part. Number two, David details his troubles. Pick up now in verse 9, and we'll read down through verse 13. David says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. I'm a, I'm a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors, and am repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I'm forgotten like a dead man out of mind. I'm like a broken vessel, for I hear the slander of many, fears on every side, While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. Have you noticed how often the Psalms have a kind of roller coaster feel to them? Where there are times in the Psalms when David is suffering, where David feels like he is rock solid. His faith can't be shaken. And then there are other times in the Psalms where David feels like he might not be able to last another day. Now, why are the Psalms that way? Because life is that way. How do you tend to do when you're going through trials? I'll tell you how, sadly, how I do. When I'm going through some sort of difficulty, man, there are times when my faith feels like it's unflappable. And then there are other times, maybe maybe an hour or two later, when all of a sudden my faith feels threadbare. I feel weak. The trial feels unbearable. Well, that's what David is describing. He's describing the sort of undulation of our emotions as we're going through trials. And in verses 9 through 13, he details out what his suffering looks like. And what you find here is that David's suffering affected every part of his life. Uh, Spiritually speaking, it's like his joy has left. Emotionally speaking, David's emotions are completely fried. It's even affecting his body. David is sighing all night long. His eyes, he can hardly see out of his eyes, they're so foggy from all of the tears. And he feels like his bones are wasting away. But then, did you notice the social dimension to David's suffering? So he's got enemies, they're slandering, they're doing their best to ruin him. But the sad thing is, it seems like their slander is working. Because did you notice how David mentions his neighbor's and his acquaintances? All of a sudden his neighbors and his acquaintances don't want anything to do with him. The people David thought were his friends are giving him the silent treatment. They see David walking down the sidewalk and they cross over to the other side of the street. He says that they treat him like a dead man. They act like he's already gone. They treat him like broken pottery. What do you do with broken pottery? Nothing. It's useless and that's how David is being treated by the people he thought were his friends. They want nothing to do with him. So notice how this is stacking up. So on top of all the other pressures, David is also struggling with abandonment. With isolation. I mean, what do you do when you're going through a trial and the people you thought you could depend on all of a sudden are nowhere to be found? That's where David is. And there's one other element in his suffering I want to point out. Did you notice how some of David's suffering is tied directly to his own sin? Look at how he words it in verse 10. David says at the end of second half of verse 10, My strength fails because of my iniquity. So what is David aware of that is adding to his struggles? David's aware of his own sin. Yeah, David's got enemies all around him. But David realizes he's also got an enemy within him. And David realizes that some of his suffering is coming from his own sin. Now, the point there could be that his sins just making it worse. Now, have you have you experienced this in your life where maybe you're going through a trial that you didn't cause, someone else caused it, life just caused it? But in the middle of the trial, because of your own sin, you end up making the trial ten times worse than it had to be because of how you respond or how you engage with a person. David could be describing that. Or David could just be describing the guilt that he's feeling because of his sin. So this this is something that the enemy is great at. When you're going through a trial where you are physically exhausted and you're emotionally fried... Satan has a way of reminding you in those moments of what a scoundrel you are. He has a way of reminding you in those moments of all the things that you've done in your past that you should be ashamed of. Who do you think you are praying to God anyway? After what you've done, do you think God would hear you? So notice all the burdens that are stacked up on David's shoulders. David has real enemies, his body is worn out. He's abandoned by people he thought were his friends. He feels guilty about all of the sins of his past. So what do you do when you find yourself in that situation? What does David do? How does he open that little section we just read? Look back up at verse 9. Here's how he opens it. Have mercy on me, O Lord. What is David doing? David's crying out to God for help. Listen, If you go through all the Psalms and you don't get this, you've missed the Psalms. Because one of the most important lessons of the Psalms is, when you're happy, pray. And when you're sad, pray. And when you're struggling, pray. And when you're celebrating, pray. And when life is good, pray. And when life is bad, pray. Well, that's what David's doing here. David feels overwhelmed by his grief, so David cries out to God for help. And in his crying out to God for help, he lays out his burden. That's what verses 9 through 13 is. What we just read, where David's describing everything he's struggling with, who is he saying that to? He's not not writing this to us. We're eavesdropping. David is saying this to God. So the Psalms remind us not not only that we're, we're encouraged to cry out to God in our suffering, The Psalms remind us that that we're called to lay out our suffering to God. We can detail before God exactly what it is that we're burdened by. And then David continues. Verse 14 is the turning point here. Pick it up in verse 14, he says, But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Verse 16. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous do you see how verse 14 is the turning point point. 9 through 13 he's laying out his struggles and then you come to verse 14 and david says but as for me here's what i'm going to do in the face of this david says but as for me i trust in you O lord and then david says you are my god and where does that come from you are my god did did david just decide to make yahweh his god you are my god where does that come from do you does that sound familiar to you do you remember back when God first made his covenant with Israel? What was part of that covenant? What did God say to Israel? God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's like God said to him, From now on, from now on, I'm yours and you're mine. Well, that's what David is holding on to. Christian, this is a good thing to hold on to when you're going through trials. Listen, it's good, Verse, it's fine to lay out, like verses 9 through 13, to lay out your struggles, to be detailed about what you're wrestling with, but make sure you end it the way that David does here. But as for me, I trust in you, O Yahweh, for you are my God. And then David says, my times are in your hands. What does David mean? My times are in your hands. He's not just saying... That God's in control of how long he's going to live. David is saying that his times, what times are in God's hands? All of them. The good times, the bad times, the happy times, the sad times. God's in control, David is saying, of all the different circumstances and all the different seasons of life. We've talked about this before, but isn't it true that life just consistently moves through seasons. Some seasons transition very slowly, like your body just slowly wears out as you move into the season of old age. And some seasons transition very rapidly, instantly. You get a phone call. A police officer shows up at your door. You get a test result. And you know instantly, in that moment, life's never going to be the same. Everything has just completely changed. Those are all the times that David is talking about here. Life goes through lots of seasons. And David's saying that he trusts that all of those seasons are under God's providential control. His times are in God's hands. Now, let me just remind you of what that means. Okay, first of all, church, that means that the things that come into our lives are not random. It's not the roll of a dice. It's not chance that brings the circumstances we go through. That also means that our lives are not governed by some blind sense of fate. No. Our lives are in the hands of a good, sovereign, wise God. And He orders all the times of our lives according to His providential care. Listen, there is a world's worth of difference between believing in fate and believing in God's providence. Fate and providence are not anywhere near the same things. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Listen to how he describes the difference. Spurgeon says, Fate is blind. Providence has eyes. Fate is blind, a thing that must be. It's just an arrow shot from a bow that must fly onward, but hath no target. Not so providence. Providence is full of eyes. There's a design in everything. An end to be answered. All things are working together and working together for good. They're not done because they must be done. They're done because there's some reason for it. It's not only that the thing is because it must be, but the thing is because it's right that it should be. God hath not arbitrarily marked out the world's history. He had an eye to the great architecture of perfection when He marked all the aisles of history and placed all the pillars of events in the building of time. So get the point. God is providentially working in His world and God is providentially working in your life moving everything according to His plan. And His plan is good. His plan is right. This makes me think of the the verse that we looked at several months ago now. Do you remember Ecclesiastes chapter 3? Those first 9 or 10 verses in Ecclesiastes 3. That's the section that was turned into a song back in the 60s. There's a time to be born and there's a time to die and there's a time to mourn and a time to laugh and a time to grieve and a time to dance. Do you remember that part? where he spends 8 or 10 verses talking about all the different times we go through in life and then he comes to the end of it in Ecclesiastes 3:11 and he says he God makes all things beautiful in his time. Well what's the everything that God makes beautiful in his time? All the things that he just described in those first 10 verses. A time to be born, and a time to die, and all the times that come in between, all the highs and lows that end up on the calendar, David has said, God makes all of that beautiful. It's all right, it's all fitting, it's all appropriate. There's not a single thing that God has on his calendar that is a mistake. God is weaving all the events of history, and God is weaving all the events in your life together, According to His beautiful plan. That's Ecclesiastes 3.11. And I know the temptation is to hear, my times are in God's hands. He makes all things beautiful in His time. I know the temptation is to hear that, to read that and think, what do you mean He makes all things beautiful? Because I've had lots of things in my life that didn't feel, didn't seem beautiful at all. You must not have been with me in that chemotherapy room. I didn't feel beautiful. Were you not with me at that funeral? That didn't feel very beautiful. Miscarriage is not beautiful. What does it mean he makes everything beautiful in his time? The point of David in Psalms and the point of Solomon in Ecclesiastes is we'll go through lots of things that don't feel beautiful because you and I are trapped in the moment. It's like in the moment we're looking I break my glasses and I'm looking at this broken shard of glass and it's sharp and it's pointy and it doesn't make any rhyme or reason. That's what the events of life feel like sometimes. It's sharp and jagged and it makes no sense. But but what we can't see is that all of those little shards of glass is what God is using to form this this great, big, beautiful stained glass window. And our problem is we're like ants crawling across the stained glass window. All I can see is the the piece of glass I'm on in the moment. I'm on a dark piece. And this is ugly and it's hard and I don't like this. But what we can't see is that every dark piece and every bright piece is part of this grand mosaic that God is putting together. Where it's all perfectly ordered. It is all beautifully designed Our times are in His hands. Listen, that is is one of the most profound, meaningful declarations of faith you can make when you're going through suffering. It is to look to God and in surrender and faith say, My times are in your hands. That's what what David is doing. And then David says in verse 16, Make your face shine upon your servant. Does that sound familiar to you? Make your face shine upon. That comes straight out of the benediction, the priestly blessing of Numbers chapter 6. Remember, number 6 is where, where we're told that the priest would say, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Well, David's quoting from that here. That's probably a line that David had heard hundreds of times in the sanctuary in corporate worship. So, get what's happening because I love the picture. So David has heard hundreds of times in corporate worship this priestly benediction. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. And now in his private suffering, that line comes back to David's mind as an encouragement in his private suffering. Did you ever experience this in your Christian walk? Where if, you find, if you're in the rhythms of regular worship corporately with God's people, there are lines and phrases and hymns and songs that you hear over and over and over again. And there will be so, so many times in your life when God will bring back things you hear, lines you've sung in corporate worship, and He'll bring back to mind in the moments of private suffering. Right, dear? Afflicted saint, to Christ draw near. Or what we sang, I can't tell you how many times personally I've been helped by the song we sang earlier, Whatever my God ordains is right. Whateer my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. The sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. Right? These are public words that are brought back to memory in private sufferings that God uses to encourage his people. That's what David's doing. Make your face shine upon your servant. Let's jump to the last section. Number three. David delights in God. Pick up in verse 19. David says, Oh, how great is your goodness, which you've laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in the strong city. For I said in my haste, I'm cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplication when I cried out to you. Look at verse 19. I love this verse all week. David says, how great is your goodness. How great is God's goodness. David says that God has laid up goodness for those who fear him. It's the idea that God has treasuries of goodness hidden away for His people. Treasuries, storehouses of goodness that God has hidden away waiting to give to His people at the right time. Maybe think of it like a parent who along the the way during the fall is buying Christmas gifts for December and you buy the gifts and you hide them away in the house to reveal at the right time to your kids or grandkids. And David is saying that God has hidden away secret treasures of goodness for His people. God has more goodness in store for his people than we could ever imagine. And so often God's goodness comes in surprising ways. God's goodness comes in unexpected times. In fact, I was reading a story this week. Years ago, you know the Daily Bread devotional books. Well, years ago, the Daily Bread devotion books ran a story about a a farmer who was living in Sussex, England during World War II. And he had, he had sent in a donation gift to the ministry. He had sent in a little money to the ministry. And, and with his money, he enclosed a note. And in the note, he kind of apologized that his gift was so small. But he explained that the gift was so, was so small because they were going through a severe drought in Sussex. And he was a farmer. And so their, their harvest had been meager. And so they were barely scraping by. And he also explained in the letter that his family was constantly dealing with fear because the German bombers were constantly dropping bombs in the area. And so, in his letter, he asked if they would pray for his family. He asked if they would pray that God would protect them from the bombs and if God would give them the waters they needed for their next year's crop to survive. So, big prayer request, right? God, protect them from bombs, God, give them the water they need to survive. Well, just a few weeks after he asked for that prayer request, one of the German bombs fell on his farm. It landed right on in his small farm. His family was mercifully spared. His livestock was spared. But something interesting happened when the bomb hit. It, it dug down so deeply into the ground. It split open the earth so deeply that it actually opened up a a shallow spring that was on his property that he didn't even know was there and the spring was so the spring was so abundant that it allowed both he and his neighbors to irrigate their fields from the spring provided the water that they needed so so God not only protected them from the bomb but God used a bomb to give them what they needed he had goodness stored up that he brought to them in the most surprising way. That's what David is saying. Christian, God has stores of goodness hidden away for you. And then on the other side, David says that God hides away his people in the place of his presence. God has goodness hidden away for you, and God hides you away in the place of his presence. And then he ends it this way verses 23 and 24. Oh, love the Lord, all you, his saints. For the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. You see what's happening in these last few verses. Most of this psalm has been David speaking directly to God. But what does he do now in the last two verses? It's like David has been on his knees praying, and in verse 23, he stops praying, he rises to his feet, and he looks at us. And what does he want to say to us? Well, David is saying, so how should you and I, O saints, O followers of Christ, how should we respond to a God who's been so good to us? What should our response be to a God who has shown his love and that he sent his son to die for us? To take our judgment and bear our condemnation. How should we respond to a God who does that? Not, not just in formal, cold obedience. right? What does David call for among God's people? What does he say in verse 23? David says, Oh, love the Lord, all you who say How should you and I respond to a God who has been so good to us? We should love the Lord. It makes you think of, of the lines of the hymn. Love so amazing, so divine. What does it demand from me? Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. So, suffering Christian. Listen to the last two words of David's psalm. Be of good courage. Don't quit. Don't give up. Say like David, In you, O Yahweh, I put my trust. Say like David, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Say like David, my times are in your hands. Trust yourself into the hands of God. He sees, he knows, he hides his people away. He's got stores of goodness laid up for his people. Trust